The following sermon was delivered by Rev. Laurel Gray at the Unitarian Universalist Congregational Society of Westboro, Massachusetts. I want to tell you the story behind the stole that I'm wearing this morning. When I lived in San Francisco, I worked in the wedding industry, and one of the women I worked with was a florist named Maki Aizawa. She was the sort of person whose kindness was palpable, even though she was quiet. This was 2011, so 12 whole years ago, and that year there was a tsunami that, tsunami that hit Maki's hometown in Japan. And in response, she and her mom started something called the Senibari Project. And I'm going to have... Um, the website pull up on the screen and we'll put it in the show notes for those of you listening on the podcast um, so you can see some photos of of their project and what I'm talking about. And this is what they wrote on on their website about this effort. The Senenbari project is working to help rebuild lives. Senenbari means thousand person stitches because the Japanese believe that a garment sewn by many people becomes an amulet protecting the wearer from danger and clothing them in prayers. After the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that devastated part of her home region, Maki and her mother, Soyo Onodero, created a project to bring together women who had lost everything and teach them sewing skills so they could have a source of income, but even more importantly, a connection with others. Shashiko, what they do, is a form of Japanese folk embroidery, using the basic running stitch to create a patterned background. Originally, shashiko was used to reinforce or add strength to worn areas of clothing, since cotton was a precious material. But due to its its beauty and durability, it has become an art form rather than just a functional craft. And when I was in San Francisco, I got to see an art installation with much of their work, and it was extraordinary. And seeing Maki start this project and turn her agony into possibility changed something in me. It ended up being the catalyst that resulted in me becoming a minister, because I knew that I needed to commit my own life to the power of community and connection and possibility. And so before my ordination, Lisa asked if I had any stole ideas in mind. And so I told her the story and asked for a shishiko embroidered stole to embody this idea of resilience and community and blessing. And now our reading this morning is an excerpt from the New York Times article titled The Revolutionary Power of a Skein of Yarn by Peggy Orenstein, which was published in January. Not long ago, Michelle Obama posted a black and white photo of herself on Instagram, cozy in an armchair, a nearby side table displaying an adorable baby pic of Malia and Sasha. She's barefoot, dressed in wide leg jeans and a satin shirt, smiling widely as she looks down at her knitting. Every time I tell people how much I love to knit, she writes in the caption, they seem so surprised. And I thought, why? I suspect it's because knitters, unlike Mrs. Obama, are presumed to be aging ungracefully, prim, elderly, probably white ladies, rocking away on the porch in cultural irrelevance. Before I refute that, 
Yarn lovers come in all ages, genders, sexualities, and races. I want to ask, even if it were true, so what? The dismissal, the reflexive derision of women from midlife onward, especially if we stop chasing social media standards of beauty, is a nasty form of ageist sexism. Besides, that imagined innocuousness can be a strength, even a superpower. Knitting is considered a craft, one you begin by casting on, evoking spells and witchery, a kind of practical magic. And what greater sorcery is there really than making something? Whether turning raw fiber to thread or raw flour to bread or engaging in the ultimate creative act, conjuring new humans from nowhere at all. Our needles have also been a sharp political tool, wielded to fight injustice, to express both patriotism and protest, especially when other outlets were forbidden. No matter how you ended up feeling about those pink pussy hats, it was no accident that women's first collective act of dissent after the election of President Donald Trump was to knit. The danger, of course, of this article for those who knit is that it encourages yarn shopping. I'll confess I did procrastinate sermon writing uh, by looking at yarn online and imagining all the things I could make. I mean, that lovely peach merino, it's totally revolutionary, right? And it was just research. I jest, but that feeling of creative possibility is one of the things that kept me whole through the pandemic, which I know a lot of other people felt. I'm sure many of you have seen interviews of Michelle Obama talking about her knitting and how it kept her grounded through all the tumults. Even the climate activist Greta Thunberg knits. There's something grounding and magical about the rhythm of the needles and seeing something grow from your own hands bit by bit. In her article, Orenstein lays out all kinds of historical moments when knitting has been a political act, a kind of transgression. Apparently, there was a spy named Molly Rinker during the American Revolution who passed information about British troops in balls of yarn. And during World War I, tens of thousands of soldiers were dying from trench foot, so knitting socks became a critical part of the war effort. So yes, things that have largely been deemed female crafts can be transgressive in ways that are as creative as they are practical. But I also think there's something more powerful at work than that. Maybe it's the minister in me, but I think the fact of those moments of protest point to something deeper. They point to a connection to our ability to create, and I don't just mean an acute, crafty kind of way. I mean in the sense that we are agents of creation, that we are powerful and uncontained, that we are of the world and in the world, and we have the capacity to transform it. Again, as Ordston writes, what greater sorcery is there really than making something? Whether turning raw fiber to thread or raw flour to bread or engaging in the ultimate creative act, conjuring new humans from nowhere at all. I always find it sort of curious when people look at something I've made and ask me how I did it. I never quite know what to say because they're typically not actually asking for a technical answer. It's more that they're saying, I could never do that, as if I've engaged in some kind of impossible alchemy that belongs to me alone. 
And maybe it is alchemy making, but I don't think it's particularly special or at least not individual. I think it's innate to being human, a skill passed from hand to hand and generation to generation, but it's also something that has gotten lost in our globalized world. A few generations ago, knowing how to mend and repair our clothes was normal, it was necessary. And you likely knew how you, how, sorry, you likely knew who and how your clothes were made if you hadn't made them yourself. Maybe some people had a greater level of creative artistry, but there wasn't the same kind of disconnect between maker and wearer that there is today. For example, one of my personal pet peeves is when people don't take the tacks out of their jacket pleats. And I'm sure some of you know exactly what I mean, and some of you have no idea. That's part of the reality of not knowing how our clothing is made, akin to not knowing what foods are seasonal because we can always get everything now. So if you don't know, I'm talking about that big X stitch that holds together the flaps at the back of a suit jacket or a winter coat. That is not a design feature. It's meant to keep the flaps closed during production and shipping. And whenever I see someone who hasn't taken the tack out, I have this irrational urge to go up and rip it open, which would obviously be extremely weird, and I have never actually done this. (laughs) But not knowing how our clothes are made both makes us dependent on others to do so and means that we can't read what's happening with a particular garment. Meaning who made it, if they were paid a living wage, if it's designed to last or to create further consumption, how the materials were produced, the list goes on. Being able to read those cues is a powerful thing in a world obsessed with fast fashion. And as Orenstein points out, fashion is responsible for more greenhouse gases than international flights and maritime shipping combined, not to mention a fifth of global plastics and trillions of microfibers, tiny plastic threads shed by clothing when laundered that have become one of the biggest threats to the ocean. Treatment of the industry's largely female workforce in Asia, long a human rights concern, has deteriorated so badly since the pandemic that some activists now refer to it as the garment industrial trauma complex, end quote. So knowing how to make our own clothing gives us the agency to undo those things, or at least not participate in them. But even more fundamentally, and I think this is the part that really matters, the practice of making reminds us that we are co-creators of this world, that we have the capacity to transform, that more is possible, even when things feel impossible. So maybe your form of making isn't knitting or sewing. Maybe it's gardening or making bread or painting or tie-dye. There are all kinds of sorcery. There are so many ways to reconnect to our own humanity, to nurture a sense of creative possibility. And that is not a waste of time. Any practice that pushes against despair and cynicism, that helps us experience joy and transformation and our own power, those things are sacred. So why not pick up some yarn or find a sewing class? Maybe it'll start a revolution. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what's happening at UUCSW or for ways to get involved, visit us online at uucsw.org. 
all are welcome.